This is a wonderful way for us to begin 2008. And as we think of the things that have taken place today, uh, we remember that there are many of our young people that are away at the Winter Youth Series in Springfield, Tennessee. And they'll be coming back later. We want to be mindful of them as they're going, encouraging other youth groups, encouraging young men uh, to participate in services. Uh, tonight, we have some of our members leading singing at the Beckwith Congregation, at the Gladeville Congregation. And it's very exciting to see people plugged into ministry and to, uh, to doing the Lord's work. We also are very excited about what Elizabeth uh, has been doing on the mission field and will continue to do. And if you want a good way to keep up with what's happening, we have a, a link on our website to her blog that she updates very regularly. And it's, it's a joy to read, and it would be very encouraging if you look at that blog to post a comment or two. Uh, I know, speaking from experience, when we are on mission trips and we can see that people are reading our blogs and our journal entries and are commenting and, and are praying for us, uh, there's nothing else that encourages you more than reading something like that. And so that would be a great way uh, to encourage her as she continues uh, through May. We also want to remind you that our calendars are out, and so it'll be very important to mark some special dates on your yearly calendar, your family calendar, or your work calendar, and uh, plan to be there for those events. We're going to have some events that are designed to bring visitors in and to bring friends in, and we want everyone to be a part of those. This evening, we are going to begin a Sunday night series that will help us focus on what we've been reading in our daily Bible readings. Incidentally, we are officially out of those Bibles. Uh, we have every one that we have is spoken for. Uh, I have seen copies at, at several local bookstores. If you still want to pick one up, we are going to have the uh, scriptures written in the bulletin so that you'll be able to keep up with the daily readings, uh, even if you didn't purchase a copy of that. But this will be a wonderful way uh, for us to study through and reinforce some of the lessons we're learning uh, during the week. And so as we think about the readings every day, uh, you may have noticed that there are four different books we've started out with. We have a little bit in the Old Testament, a little bit in the New Testament, and a, a piece of Psalms and a piece of Proverbs. If we go to the next slide, I want us to do something because we are trying this year to find as many different ways as possible to help us learn Scripture. And you may remember, especially if you have a child that was in our Pew Packers group, just a few years ago, we used a series of pictures to help us remember both the title of a book of the Bible and the key theme. And this is something that as we go throughout the year, we'll use some of these from time to time. Uh, I am not original enough or artistic enough to have put this together myself. This is a resource uh, that is available for purchase. I also say that because some of these uh, we'll get to be pretty corny as we go through, but they'll be helpful uh, for us to remember some, some key phrases and topics. And I don't want to put any pressure on you adults, but a lot of the kids already have been through this, and they still remember it. So they'll be looking to see, to see how quickly you can catch on to some of this. So as we think about the different books we'll be studying in these next few weeks, uh, we will have two passages every day from the wisdom literature. One from the book of Psalms. Now, just to give you a sense of what these pictures will help us do, you can understand the title of the book when you look at two palm trees. You think palm, you think Psalms. One of them is praying, one of them is singing, and that helps us remember a theme of the book of Psalms, which is prayer and praise. 
In the book of Psalms, we see people at their highest highs serving God, and we see people of God at their lowest lows. It's not just a book of beautiful poetry. It's also a book where we see individuals questioning God. Why is this happening? How long will this happen? And so just to help us get this in our minds, this is the book of Psalms. The theme is prayer and praise. And so I want all of us to say the theme together to really help it stick in. And remember, some of, some of these children are going to be watching you, so you want to say, speak up real loud. So this is the book of Psalms, and the theme is prayer and praise. All right, very good. If we go to the next slide, uh, we're reminded of the book of Proverbs. And you can see, as he's writing on the board here, a fool and his money are, and we can fill in the blank, soon parted. That's a, a daily proverb we've probably heard. But the book of Proverbs is filled with little snippets of wisdom like that. Principles that, if, if applied, are generally true in life. And so these are important principles. The theme of the book of Proverbs is wisdom. As you read through Proverbs, you will see over and over again the phrase, get wisdom, attain wisdom, describing wisdom. And so we see this owl here looking very wise. Uh, obviously a graduate of a very impressive school there, writing on the board. And so the theme of the book of Proverbs is wisdom. So this is the book of Proverbs, and the theme is wisdom. All right, very good. Now let's go to our New Testament book that, that we began in the next slide. You'll see this one might be a little bit trickier to figure out. You look at this, that's, you have a king on his throne, and there's something in front of him with the U on it. He has a mat in front of him. So you've got a mat with a U. So just put those two together. Uh, don't worry, they just get better from here on out. So uh, you've got a mat with a U. So that reminds us of Matthew. And so the first book we read about in the New Testament, the theme we see in Matthew is the king of kings. Obviously, all the Gospels are focused on Jesus and his ministry, but the book of Matthew is written specifically to the Jews, and so we see a lot about the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus didn't usher in the kingdom of God the way the Jews expected him to, but it's very important that Jesus is depicted there as the king of kings. So that's really the theme of the book of Matthew, that Jesus is the king of kings. And so the book is Matthew, and the theme is that Jesus is the King of kings. All right, very good. And the next slide brings us to where we are going to spend the rest of our time this evening. Now, this one's a little more obvious. Uh, the book is just spelled right out there for you. Genesis. There's one letter in the, the name Genesis that is larger than all the others. Uh, it's the letter N. So in Genesis, you have here Genesis with a big N. And if you say big N very quickly, it reminds you of the theme of the book of Genesis. The theme of Genesis is beginnings. In Genesis, we see the beginning of the world. We see God's creation. We see the beginning of sin as sin enters into the world. We see the beginning of, of crime, of murder, as Cain kills his brother. We see the beginning of so many things going through the book of Genesis. So the name of the book is Genesis, and the theme is beginnings. All right. See, those are four down. And so we've got four down already in just one night. We are going to be focusing specifically in the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 6. So if you have your Bible with you, if you would please be turning there to Genesis chapter 6. When we think of the story of Noah, we often think about a time we might have learned about it, maybe in, in Sunday school growing up. If we could focus on this next slide, I think that gives us a picture of when we often think about the book of Genesis. In fact... I show this not only to remind us and give us a visual of our Bible classes, but also to show off what our 
uh, talented children's teachers do. If you were to walk down our hallway as our children are learning about the book of Genesis, you would find a, a craft like this. And as they're telling the story of Noah, you would have people coming on board the ark. You would see uh, the rain that's coming down uh, to, to begin the flood. You see the rainbow, God's covenant after the flood. And of course, you see all of the little animals. And whoa, I lost one there. But these are what makes it so exciting uh, for the children. to think about all the animals coming on the ark. And isn't that exciting? It's wonderful that we spend time in our children's classes on stories like the, book of, like the book of Genesis and stories about Noah. But I wonder sometimes if, if we don't relegate these stories that we learn about uh, to our Sunday school classes. And when we get older, we want to study about some more adult topics in the Bible. We want to study about some grown-up things, not, not things that we learned in Sunday school class about Noah and, and animals and building a boat. But there are some very powerful messages in the book of Genesis. There are some very powerful messages about Noah. And we're going to, over the next few weeks, look at some stories that we may think are children's stories. And yet, they have very powerful implications for us living as Christians. So if you would turn to Genesis chapter 6, we're going to begin by getting a sense of what the world was like when Noah built the ark. Now, we understand, just as we think about the story of Noah, that Noah built the ark and there was a flood coming because the world was wicked. And in fact, sometimes we might even say, well, the world's not much better today. We're not much better today than the time of Noah. Well, I want us to think about that carefully, because as we look at the next slide, we're going to get a sense of the situation here, beginning in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 6. If you would read with me, as we read, Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. These were mighty men who were of old, men of renown. And then look at this last verse. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now remember that statement. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. But as we look at the next slide, we're introduced to some very, a very interesting cast of characters here as we set the stage for what takes place in Noah's life. And if you're like me, at first glance reading through this, it causes you to stop and think, wait a minute. Now where did these different individuals come from? First of all, we see in verse 2, you have the sons of God... And they are marrying the daughters of men. Well, wait a minute. Who are the sons of God and how are they different than the daughters of men? And then if you go down to verse 4, you see this was during the time that uh, some translations render it giants. I believe New King James and King James would render that term giants. Uh, a lot of other translations have just taken the word in Hebrew and have just transferred it over to English without trying to interpret it because it's a very difficult term for us to understand the word Nephilim. So your translations may refer to Nephilim rather than the giants. But you have these Nephilim that are, that are on the earth. And, and it's a little confusing to try to understand where all of this fits into the story of Noah. And ultimately, we see on the next slide the end result. And that is that last verse. The wickedness of man was great in the earth. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Just take a moment and think about how powerful that statement is. If we're tempted to think that, well, our world's not much better than it was in the time of Noah, you and I know that there are ways in which our world could improve greatly. There are ways in which our society, our country, 
can improve greatly. But look at this statement. The fact that every thought of mankind was only evil, continually. We don't even get the sense here that men were thinking about the good thing and thinking about the evil thing and choosing the evil thing. Uh, the writer says that's all they were thinking about is what was evil. They were always focused on, on evil continually, all the time. And so we, we really need to get an understanding of just how, how wicked the world was here if we want to understand the links that Noah went to display his faith. So here are a few things to remember as we go to the next slide, thinking about uh, understanding these, this cast of characters that we've come into contact with. Uh, we, we realize from these first few verses that a group called the Sons of God were marrying a group called the Daughters of Men. And I want us to spend just a few minutes on this because I think this is a question probably many of us have as we read through our daily Bible readings together. And that's what these Sunday nights will be for, or for us to answer some of these questions. Some have said that the phrase sons of God here would refer to angels. And that somehow angels would have come down and they would have intermarried with the daughters of men and the offspring would have produced these Nephilim, these giants. And so that explains it. And so you have angels coming down and marrying men and then the offspring uh, are giants. And as, as we think about that explanation, there are some scriptures that we need to remember. And the first of which that you'll see here on the slide is what the Hebrew writer reminds us of. And, uh, and that is that the angels are ministering spirits. In Hebrews 1 and 14, we see that angels are spiritual. We're reminded of that. They're ministering spirits, uh, not physical beings, uh, the way that you and I are human. It's also important, as we think about the next point here on this slide, to remember the words of Jesus. Jesus was uh, asked many questions throughout his ministry. And a group called the Sadducees come up to Jesus and they ask him a question concerning the resurrection. And just because we thought about children's Bible class tonight, uh, let me remind you, if, if you didn't have the experience of learning this memory tool, the Sadducees were always sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. So if you ever wanted to remember this, now you know the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. They come up to Jesus and they have a question. If they don't believe in the resurrection and they want to ask a question to Jesus that will show that, that the resurrection couldn't really take place. And so they talk about a woman who would have had more than one husband, that her husband would have died and that she would have married again. Uh, in those days, it was very common when a husband died uh, for the woman to marry a kinsman or to marry a brother or a relative. And so they said this happened seven different times. She had seven different husbands. In the next life, whose wife will she be? And they thought that was an impossible riddle. There's no way that Jesus is going to be able to explain that. And he responds in Matthew 22 by saying that they had missed the point. And saying that when we come to the resurrection, when, when we're in that, that, our spiritual bodies after this life, we will not be given in marriage or marry because we will be like the angels. So Jesus very plainly reminds us that angels aren't married or given in marriage. Spiritual beings. And so I need to remember that as I try to think through this cast of characters in the first few verses of Genesis chapter 6. I think a more scriptural way to understand it that would help us with the context is to look back just a couple of chapters at the end of Genesis chapter 4. In Genesis chapter 4 and verse 26, we see that Adam and Eve, we often think about Cain and Abel. Those were the two sons we're introduced to first. And we know that Cain has become so jealous of his brother uh, that he ends his life. And then Cain is, is 
driven away. And you remember, he's worried about those that would murder him for what he's done. God's given him a sign so that no one would do that. Cain goes over into another area. He marries. He, has, uh, he find, finds a city here that, um, that he founds, that he builds a city. And so you get that sense he's driven away. And then in verse 26, to Seth, uh, to him also, Seth being the third son of Adam and Eve, a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. So it seems that there was something very special about Seth. Because in Seth's descendants, men began to call on the name of the Lord. Now we know that Cain and Abel were already offering sacrifices to God. But there's something special about Seth's family. They begin to call on the Lord's name. They begin to, to serve him and to honor him. And so it, it's, it seems to make the most sense when we think about the sons of God in verse 2 that that would be describing the descendants of Seth who begun to call on the name of the Lord. Obviously, when we go through the New Testament, we see that God's people are often referred to as his children, that we're his, his family. And so it's, it's, it makes a lot of sense as we think about the sons of God that these descendants of Seth would have come in and started intermarrying with the descendants of Cain would have, have intermarried with that, that family that was driven away and that's decided not to follow God's laws. And the important point really, uh, to me, seems to be found in verse 2 when we look at the reason why they were marrying. They saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. So here, the process seems to be purely based on, on physical motives, purely based on what looks good, what we think is a good decision, what feels right, and we know that that's not a healthy way to build a relationship, purely on physical feelings, and yet that seems to be what's taking place here. And so as we think about that, then we're introduced to the Nephilim in verse 4. And I mentioned that that, ver- that word is, is difficult to translate, and so some have rendered that giant's uh, it also seems to refer to their reputation. Uh, that word seems to indicate that these, these men were somehow not really famous as much as they were infamous. They were known for what they did. They were known for evil deeds. And that seems to fit in with the next statement about how wicked the world became. It's also interesting, just as a side note, that this doesn't say that the sons of God and the daughters of men actually had offspring that were called Nephilim. This just says it was at that same time that the Nephilim were that were around the area. So it seems to refer to more infamous traits of these men rather than their physical nature. And so as we put all these together, I say that just so we can understand the situation Noah's in. Because you have the, those who were called on the name of the Lord, well, now they had intermarried with the, the daughters of men, and it wasn't based on any reason other than their, their physical desires, their physical needs. And it's at that same time, you have these men who are famous for doing things that are wicked, who are famous for being strong and powerful and doing whatever they wanted. And it's at that time that God looks and sees the wickedness that's taken place. And in verse 7, he says, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. Can you imagine how far off human beings had gotten off track from God placing Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden to a point just a few chapters later when God is sorry that he created them. And in verse 8, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Here's why Noah's story is so important. Here's why we don't need to just relegate it to our Sunday school classes. It's important for our children to learn about Noah, but it's also important for us as adults to learn about Noah. And as we think about the lessons Noah has to teach us, Noah teaches us about listening. Noah teaches us, as we'll see on this next slide, that listening is not just for children. 
How many times growing up were you told that you had to listen? We hear that a lot growing up, don't we? We listen to our parents, and we listen to teachers, and we're supposed to listen to our coach, and we're supposed to listen to all those who are taking care of us, and we listen to the babysitter, and you just keep having to listen and listen. And we would make a mistake if we think by the time we get to be adults that we no longer have to listen. We no longer have to sit and listen. We've graduated now. We can do all the talking and none of the listening. Noah here is really listening to God. And we see that. The Hebrews writer tells us in verse 7 of Hebrews chapter 11, By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household. Not only did Noah listen to God's message that there was going to be a flood, but Noah acted on it. And that's so important, isn't it? It's important for us not just to hear the words of God, but to take those into our heart. As we see Noah described here with godly fear. He understood the power of these words. Do we ever listen to the words of God and forget about the power that lies within those words? Do we ever rush through the words of Scripture and forget about the power of the God who inspired them? It's interesting, too, as we see that uh, on this next slide, we'll be reminded not only of Noah listening, but also his role as a preacher of righteousness. In fact, Peter, in 2 Peter 2 and verse 5, would refer to Noah in that term as a preacher of righteousness. So we get a, an understanding that not only was Noah building this ark, but that Noah was telling others about what was taking place. And oftentimes we imagine uh, Noah's neighbors or those who would pass by every day and see this project where he was building a boat and that they would mock him and that they might scoff at it. But have you ever wondered if there was someone who was really listening to what Noah had to say but just never acted? You see, Noah shows us that listening isn't just for children and when we listen to something, we need to act on it. Sometimes it's easy for us to come into a setting like this and to listen to a message, to listen to the gospel, but never act on it. You may be here tonight, and you may have heard the gospel message tens or even hundreds of times and just never acted on it. And Noah's, Noah's life is a very powerful illustration that not only do we need to listen to what God says, but we also need to act on it. Can you imagine what would have happened if Noah hadn't acted on God's message? Can you imagine if he hadn't acted on those instructions? Listening isn't just for children. It's something that every single one of us has to do when we hear the words of our holy God. And we also need to act on those words. And Noah illustrates the power that's found in not only listening, but also acting. The next slide reminds us that obedience is not just for children either. And if you think about being told to listen while you grow up, I'll bet all of us can understand what it means to be told to obey when we grow up. To be told to so you need to do what is, is, is given you to do. You need to follow these instructions or else there could be some punishment. As we think about obedience, Noah shows us that obedience is not just for children. In fact, in verse 9 of Genesis chapter 6, Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God, as we mentioned this morning. Thus Noah did, according to all that God commanded him, so he did. And if you wonder why it's so important that we put in the fact that he did all God commanded him. Have you looked at the detailed and specific guidelines that God gave Noah? If you look here in chapter 6, he describes the type of ark in verse 14 he wants Noah to make. It's an ark of gopher wood. You shall make it with rooms. Shall cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you shall make it. 
The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and finish it to a cubit from the top and set the door of the ark on the side of it. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish, but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And he goes on to give him specific instructions about the animals that will be coming into the ark. As we look at this next point, we're reminded that Noah obeyed and he faced a type of peer pressure and disobedience that we cannot imagine. We've already established the fact that the thought of every other man was always evil all the time. I always like to remember this. Do you realize that Noah's children, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, could have come to Noah and his wife and been literally correct when they said, Everyone else is doing it. They could have used that line to his parents, and they would have been telling the truth. Everyone else would have been doing it. Noah would have looked around, and it wasn't just that a group of people uh, outside his family would have been supporting him. It wasn't that he would have had a congregation like this to support him. Noah and his family would have been facing a peer pressure I can't even imagine. And yet Noah obeyed. Not only did he obey, but he also, as we see on the next point, obeyed very specific and detailed instructions. Do you think that God had a reason for making these instructions so specific, so detailed? Was there a point behind the exact measurements and the exact way that that it should be made? Sometimes I I worry when I hear statements that say, "If, if we just cover the main purpose of living the Christian life, God will understand the rest. If, if, as long as we come together and worship Him, it doesn't really matter how we do it. As long as we're trying to carry out the work of the church, it doesn't matter how the church is organized. After all, we're striving to accomplish the same goal, to love people and to love God. I understand that the purpose needs to be there, but I understand from Noah's example that God has been specific. And when God has been specific, I need to follow those specific, detailed instructions. There was a reason that God had Noah designed the ark the way that he did. Noah would have been at sea with his family, with all of these animals. The ark needed to be, to be built in such a way that it could sustain not just days, not just weeks, months, over a year at sea. And so uh, it's, it's important to understand that the detailed, specific instructions that God gave Noah were important. And Noah followed them. In fact, Genesis tells us that Noah did all that God instructed him. Today, are we striving to do all that God's instructed us? While we should never get so sidetracked on the details, we lose sight of our mission, we also can't get so caught up in the mission that we forget about the detailed instructions God has given us. It matters that we come together to worship, and it matters that we worship in the way God's commanded. It matters that we try to serve God as a church family, and it matters that we have the structure that God gives us in the New Testament. As we think about Noah, we see that obedience isn't just for children. We also see that waiting isn't just for children. Is it just me or growing up did everything seem to take forever? When you were waiting for your birthday, you thought that would never come around. When you were waiting for a holiday to get off school, when you were waiting for the end of the school year, summer vacation, it seemed like an eternity. Going back to school between Christmas and summer, summer break seemed like the longest stretch of time ever spent in one place, going to school day after day. And so as children often, we're told, you need to wait. Now just wait. You need to, you need to wait growing up. You need to wait until you're old enough. Uh, you need to wait until we have the time and resources to do this. 
Some of us as children were told to wait until your father gets home. And that kind of waiting also uh, seemed to take forever, didn't it? We're told to wait all the time, and yet waiting isn't just for children. We can see that as we look at the time frame that Noah used to build this ark. We see in verse 32 of Genesis chapter 5 that Noah was 500 years old. And then later on in chapter 7, Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters were on the earth. As we look at this next point, we see the way I understand Scripture that Noah worked for approximately 100 years here from the time he was 500 to the time he was 600 to build the ark. Can you imagine what it would be like to be working for that long and, and to be trying to accomplish God's purpose and to be waiting on him? Just to give us a, just sort of a way to help relate to it, let me tell you a few things that were happening 100 years ago in America. A hundred years ago, a ball signifying New Year's Day dropped in New York City's Times Square for the first time. A hundred years ago, the Boy Scout movement began. A hundred years ago, Mother's Day was observed for the first time. A hundred years ago, Henry Ford produced his first Model T automobile. A hundred years ago, the Chicago Cubs won the World Series. And in that game, the song, Take Me Out to the Ball Game, was first introduced. And in November the 3rd, William Howard Taft was elected president. Can you imagine working from the time that all of those things took place until now, waiting on the Lord? Can you imagine just a long stretch of time? And as we look through the history of God's people, we see that, don't we? Uh, We see the years in captivity, the, the, the 400 years that the Israelites were enslaved by Egypt. That's longer than, than our country has existed, and yet they were there waiting on a word from God. As we think about the period of time between the Old and the New Testament, sometimes we skip from Malachi to Matthew as if nothing happened, but there were years there of waiting on God. And as we look at this next point, we're reminded that Noah waited on God's timing, and Peter tells us that God was being patient with an unbelieving world during this time. You see, the story of Noah shouldn't be kept in a children's classroom. It should be taught there, and it should spread out to all of us, because listening isn't just for children. Obedience isn't just for children And waiting on God's timing, allowing God to control our lives, isn't just for children either. As we look at this next slide, we're reminded of the way in which Noah was saved. And I want to close our time here this evening by reading a statement that Peter makes as he talks about the way in which which Noah was saved. In verse 20 of 1 Peter chapter 3, he's describing those who are disobedient. When the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. And think about verse 21 here. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. One of the reasons the story of Noah is for me is because I need to ask myself, have I made the decision to follow God into the waters of baptism if Noah, who lived so long ago, could have followed God into the ark and let, trusted in God to carry him through those floodwaters, surely I can follow God into the waters of baptism, put on Christ, start living that new life, that life that's going to listen to God, that life that's going to obey him, that life that's going to wait on his timing. And the wonderful thing about coming together in a setting like this is you can make that decision tonight. You can make that decision right now. And maybe you've already made that decision. And as you think about Noah's example, uh, you're reminded of all the challenges that every single one of us faces. And there's something in your life that you want to change. If you want to make the decision to become a Christian tonight, or if you want to be restored, if there's any way we can help you, please come forward as we stand and sing a song together.